Jesus Christ uh, also makes it a blessing for us because of his ministry. And if you've been with us, we've been studying his life. We're trying to put the four Gospels together, get a chronology of his life. He spent basically three, three and a half years of ministry. We're spending about three, three and a half years of studying his life. Um, we've been on it for quite a period of time. Usually every quarter we change different topics. But this one I've just uh, decided just to stay in for a period of time and focus on his ministry for a while. His last six months is where we, where we are, are at in this study. In in that last six months, he makes three different trips to Jerusalem, one at the beginning, one at the middle, and one at the end of those six months, and each time he's going to get a reaction from the Jewish crowd. And so we are talking about the time period between the second and the final visit that he makes to Jerusalem, and uh, that second time he went there, there was a real hubbub. He preached his John 10 messages, and the people understood, they picked up stones, they raised stone him, and he leaves and goes to the region of Perea, which is on that map to the right side, the next to the Dead Sea. And he's there for a period of we don't know how long. He's there for, for some time, okay, and during that last three months, he stays there, and then he starts traveling back. Luke chapter 14, he starts traveling back to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling back to Jerusalem, he's going to wind his way through a number of towns, countryside, and he's going to minister. Luke is the only one who records this last few weeks of his ministry prior to the Passion, his teaching, his preaching, his giving parables. And the others don't record this, but as I said, uh, Luke does. So we're focusing in on Luke chapters 13, chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. They're all dealing with uh, some of his teaching during that time period. He's going to teach a message on the straight gate. We talked about that last week. He preached uh, some message or he answers questions about Herod. He calls him the fox, but he's going to do God's will no matter what. We are in the midst of Luke chapter 14 where he is in the home of a Pharisee. He is still taking invitation. He goes into the home. He has supper with the Pharisee. It's a Sabbath day. There are several Pharisees there and um, they are watching him. In Luke chapter 14, if you follow what's going on, they are just uh, hawking him. They are watching him, leering at him. That's what verse 1 says, where in my King James it says they watched him. The idea is they stared at him. They were watching every move that he made because they are his critics. They are finding fault. They are looking for something to find uh, even more criticisms with. Now, what happens is, while he's sitting there being watched, a fella comes in and, and again, I remind you that when you had a meal in those days, they could put it in the public courtyard of their home and others would be invited to stand at the gate and watch in. And so it's not unusual to have crowds standing around. And so this man who seems to come up to the forefront of the crowd is a fellow with a disease called dropsy. And so he's standing there and the Pharisees are watching. My thought is, my conclusion is they have put him there. It's a, it's a trap that they have set to see if Jesus will violate the law according to the Pharisees where he will heal on the Sabbath day. And so they're watching him they're critical. Jesus asked a question, which seems to me to imply that this was all a, a ruse or a set. He says in verse 3, isn't it lawful? Isn't it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? He knows the Old Testament. He knows it allows for rescuing animals. It allows for rescuing people in danger. That the Old Testament uh, never clarified or said you cannot do something to help out another person on the Sabbath. In fact, it gave exceptions for it. However, the Pharisees over the years have written their own additional laws and explanations. And in those additional laws and explanations, they have said that you can't do 
a lot of things on the Sabbath day. So they added things and they, as time went by, they assumed their editorial comments, their commentaries were equal with scripture. That's all about the Sermon on the Mount. That's been the issue that Jesus had been preaching the last three years. And so the Pharisees, when he says to them, isn't it right, isn't it appropriate to heal somebody who's in a desperate situation? They, they're silent. They don't know what to say. So he goes on and heals the man with dropsy. And then he makes comment in verse 5, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into a pit, will not straightway pull him out. Now we made observation last week and gave you a little bit of explanation that some of your translations will say, instead of the donkey, the ass, they will say the son. Okay. Either way, we're at the same conclusion that he's saying that if you have something that's very, very important to you, will you not do, do uh, provide help on the Sabbath day? And so he's making that observation. And so these fellows, they have no way to answer him. They know he's right, verse 6, so they're absolutely silent. Then what he does is he goes into a series of teaching modes, uh, methods, and he starts giving different paragraphs of teaching using the occasion. What he talks about in the first few verses, is about the seats of honor. Now again, he's taking his setting, he's got his audience, understand the setting and the audience. He is going to speak to the people who are there. Look at verse 7 where he begins this. He put forth a parable to those who were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms saying unto them. Okay, now understand custom and culture. If you were invited to a banquet at that time, we talked about this about a month, two, six weeks ago. If you were invited to a banquet, usually the tables, even in the courtyard, are going to be spread, spread out in a U-shape, and at the center of the chief table would be your host, the person putting it on. Then you have seats of ranking. The seats of ranking are the person to his immediate right would be number one most important guest. Immediate left would be second most important guest. To the second to the right would be the third most, the fourth most, and it would go that way around the table. And so that's very important in their culture, the way they sat at the table was indicative of who's being honored. Now, if you were in that place and you were invited by a friend of yours, what would be the tendency or the temptation in your heart? Where would you want to be sat? Or where would you want to sit? Okay, you want to be closest to him because you want everybody to think you are being really highlighted here. You are, you are being put out as being a very important person. And so Jesus is saying that sometimes people would vie for these positions. They would, they would not only um, be invited, but apparently in that culture, they would seat themselves initially. And then what would happen is the host would either approve or disapprove by saying something or saying something else to, like, get out of that chair. And so you have that situation going on. He said, verse 8, when you are bidden of any man to a wedding, okay, a, a, a big community event. And by the way, at a wedding, who do you think should be honored the most? The bride and groom. Okay, that's our culture. In their culture, not necessarily so. Okay, you're still going to honor the townspeople, the, pe the, the chief people of the town. And so he's saying, when you go to a wedding, a community event, he said, sit not down in the highest spot or the highest, in my King James' room, but it's the highest seat. Lest a more honorable person that be bidden of him, and he that bade you come and say, hey, um, you know, the guy who invited you, in other words, would say, give up your place, and you end up being ushered to the very end of the table. Okay, that could be an embarrassing spot. You sat yourself at the head table, and all of a sudden somebody comes up and says, that's not your spot. Your spot is in the foyer. 
Okay? And so that's what he's illustrating. And it's directed again towards the leaders. Now understand, Jesus, now watch the wording. They had leered at Jesus. They had watched him. Well, verse 7 says, while they are watching Jesus and examining him for what he's done, Jesus has been watching them. He's been, he's been looking to say, okay, how have they conducted themselves? What have they done? And he's watched them that they followed custom, but they also did it by pride. And his point is that these Pharisees, these leaders, by pride, they would seek out the most uh, envied positions. And Jesus is going to recommend to them that you don't do this. Okay, No matter who you are, don't be a proud person. And he gives the illustration that you who are there at the banquet, you don't want to be asked to get out of the seat and go elsewhere. You know, the, the commendation would be if you sat in the very back and they said, hey, come on up here. That would be something that would be you know, more um, uh, desired, that you would be elevated rather than demoted. And so, I don't know if what he's talking about, some commentators will deal with, they'll say that when he's bringing in the wedding idea, he's referring to the kingdom idea. That the Jews knew about a future kingdom, they knew about a future banquet, a wedding banquet, and he uses a lot of parables along that line. The idea that some have is that's the banquet he's talking about, when he would have that host that banquet, that if you were a proud person, thought you were really uh, something for the kingdom of God, you might be relegated to a corner spot. And so he's telling them you have to have what characteristic? Humility. Okay, he's promoting humility here. And so he gives them that illustration, talks about it, and finishes up by saying, verse 11, whosoever shall humble himself shall be, or whosoever exalts himself shall be humbled or abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And so his point is very, very clear. He's saying to the Pharisees, stop honoring yourselves. You need to have a spirit of humility. You need to be humble enough. Okay, um, you know that you would be, you would, uh, you would follow suit and keep yourself. Wait for others to be elevated above you. If you don't, you're going to be humbled by the master. And Jesus makes that promise at the very end. Now, our lessons could be this. Our lessons, very simply, without going much further, would could be those who seek to be honored. Okay, will be humbled by Christ. Okay, you and I, if we seek to be recognized by people, we have our reward. And he's talking about you and I, all of us, having an attitude of humility. He promises to honor those who do have humility. He always says it is better to take the humble position and let others be elevated in front of you. Um, teaching kids that, that lesson is let others go first. Let others, you know, be served first. Let others, you know, show a graciousness in that regard. So it's it's better to be content with lesser recognition and honor and let it to the Lord to recognize and honor us in the future. Those are all life lessons. Those are all things we battle with and we need to be remembering that day in and day out to have that humble spirit. He goes on. There's no break. Watch what happens in the text. It's then he said also to him that invited him. Now he's going to turn to the host and he's going to talk to the host and give him a life lesson about humility as well. And he's going to talk to this guy. And by the way, when he's talking to the one man, who's he talking to? Okay, he's talking to the crowd and to us. Okay, so he's going to talk to that one individual and he's going to give lessons on or to the host, people who put on the meal. Now understand, in Bible days, hospitality was, was really an important part of life. Um, you were expected to be hospitable. You needed to be hospitable in Bible days if you were, and again, 
understand, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but this was true. In Bible days, you needed to be hospitable if you were going to rise in business, if you're going to rise in community position. Hospitality, hospitality was one of the ways to get yourself established and to get yourself promoted or recognized. And so it was a very major part of that culture at that time. And so it was very common, which it is in our day too, it's very common you invite the people that you're comfortable with. You invite people who like you. You invite people who can benefit you. Okay, so you invite, if you're, if you're trying to promote your business, okay, and you're selling wares to other businessmen, who are you going to invite to your meal? You're going to invite those businessmen. You're going to, you're going to cater to those people. And so he's saying, okay, when, when often happens, people can easily practice hospitality to two different groups of people. People that they are comfortable and they like or who are like them and people who can benefit them. Now, that never happens in America today. Okay. Okay. But you've got that same thing going on here back in Bible days that they're, they're basically inviting people who would invite them back, people who would benefit them or people who would return the favor. And so he's going to recommend that we don't do that. Watch what he does. He says, when you make a dinner or supper, call not just your friends, your brothers, your kinsmen, nor your rich neighbors, lest they, you know, they're going to invite you back and recompense would be made. But when you make a feast, call which people? The poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Um, what's the problem with, for most people to invite the poor, the lame, the blind? Why don't they, most people invite them? They, it doesn't benefit them. Okay? How are they going to return the favor? By the way, the maimed, the blind, the lame, what does that indicate in Bible days? What are these people doing for an income? They're begging. Okay, they, they don't have social security. They don't have any kind of income per se. So these are the social rejects. These are the individuals that nobody wants to associate with. Okay, and especially, now, now think this through. If you're a Pharisee and you're trying to establish yourself in your community, and in your community you're trying to have power and be looked, upon by, uh, looked up to by the other Pharisees and all, why don't you want the poor, the lame, and the blind to be with you, to be in your house. The, the, yeah, yeah, I mean, think that one through. It's very, they, they don't help establish you as being, in that society, as being really austere, as being really the hoi polloi. They, these people in social standings would do what? They would bring you down. They'd bring you down. Okay. Um, uh, don't get me wrong. They would be the people that people look at and say, they smell funny. They look funny. They might talk funny. They might... Yeah, yeah. And so they would, the, the group of people, most people would avoid individuals. Okay? And would stay away from those individuals. Okay? And the social rejects would be rejected. And he's saying, okay, you who, are, you who are in leadership position in particular, the Pharisees, you who are wealthy, should you focus on only favoring the wealthy? The answer is no. Who should you show hospitality and generosity to? Everyone. Everyone. And especially the poor because who needs hospitality? Who needs friendship? Who needs encouragement? 
Who needs food? Those people. Yeah. And so he's talking about it, and he's saying, basically saying, these people can't return the favor, and that, that doesn't dictate whether you're kind to them. You should have that kindness and generosity. Then he promises in this text, he says, you shall be blessed, verse 14, um, because they cannot recompense you, for you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And he's telling them that this is going to be a heavenly reward for an earthly generosity. And he goes on then, in the next moment, he's going to teach some more truth. But it, This requires humility. Once again, don't take the chief seats. Humility. Um, Showing generosity to the social outcasts. Humility. Because, let's rephrase this. That Pharisee and his buddies who are vying for the chief seats. What's going to happen if one of them starts befriending the poor and the lonely in town? What's his status with his Pharisee friends going to become? Yeah, yeah. His stock in Pharisee, um, Pharisee's eyes is going to drop drastically. He's going to start being rejected and outcast. And Jesus is saying, that's okay. You don't have to worry about how other people view it. You have to worry about the way God views it. Okay? And so he's talking about something very practical. And he's saying, you're going to, have, you're going to draw the upsetness of the community. But this is practical. Now, we can, we can talk a lot about this. I mean, this has tremendous application. Not just in the spiritual realm, but in the practical realm. Um, not just about being born again or that they're standing before God. But in a practical way. Okay, hospitality is encouraged. Okay, we know that. Jesus is encouraging hospitality as a form of charity. He is saying a really pungent statement. This is really critical for us. We should never base our service or generosity to others upon what they can do for me in return. We shouldn't be basing our Christian hospitality on that. Okay, what do I get out of it? Okay, I'll invite people to my home and I'll invite them as long as I get what? Invited back. Does that ever happen? Do people ever base their, their Christian hospitality upon, well, I'm never inviting them again because they didn't invite me back. Yeah, it happens all the time. And you and I are not supposed to be serving based upon what others do for us. Uh, let me take it back to a simple one. I will serve as long as people say thank you and they notice it. Really? Really? And I understand we should say thank you. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus knew that there was ten lepers that needed healing. He also knew that nine of them would not say thank you. And he still healed how many? He still healed ten. The flaw should not be in your service and in your charity. The flaw should be left in the lack of gratitude in their life. Don't you respond to their flaw by you rejecting service, by rejecting or limiting your hospitality. Don't do that. Okay? You and I are supposed to be doing this for whose sake? Jesus Christ. We're doing this as unto the Lord. Okay? That's the same as the way you work. First Timothy 6. You're supposed to work not as a, one whose boss is always watching Okay, in the sense, okay, I'm going to work hard only when the boss is here. We're supposed to be working as unto the Lord because we let the Lord reward us. Okay, and so our service at work, our service in our family, it's unto the Lord. And so he makes it very, very clear. We should be hospitable even to the unlovely folk. Okay, those who are around us that, that may not be 
the uh, the popular ones. They may not be the you know the hoi polloi of of our circles, but rather we should be looking for. And, and this is a good. There's there's something simple about this. If I were teaching this to to young people, I'd be teaching them. Hey, listen, don't always hang around your friends, but look for people who are friendless. Okay, who feel lonely and target them and try to befriend them. Don't worry about your friends and they're going to say what they're going to say. You show a graciousness and hospitality to befriend even those who are often left on the outskirts, looked as odd, the newcomer, the new kid. And so we see that. We can understand that application, but we should bring it to the adult application as well. God rewards selfless charity. That's a biblical concept. That is a concept and a goal that you and I should have in our life, okay, is be charitable to all people. Now, he goes on, and there's a comment made after he's just talked about a supper. There's a comment made by somebody in verse 15. What stirs it? I don't know. Why is it made? Hmm. Look at And when one of them that sat at the table with him heard these things, he said, Oh, blessed be he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, he could have been saying, Oh, God's going to bless everyone at the banquet table, not just those who are, you know, helping out the poor and the lowly that Jesus has just referred to. Not those who are sitting at the edge of the table. This person may be responding we're, and, and giving an, an idea basically like this. We're all going to be blessed. We're all going to be at the kingdom of God. And he's referencing that future feast, that kingdom. And so Jesus has to address this. He's going, this fellow has a wrong theology. This fellow basically is, is assuming everyone at this table is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone at this table is going to be at the feast of the, of the Lamb. And he's going to respond to this as if this guy is saying, whether we're proud, whether we're charitable, we are Pharisees. We are Jewish leaders. We are going to be in the kingdom. And Jesus then shifts into a very uh, clear statement in a parable sense about who's going to be in the kingdom. Watch what he does. A certain, he tells a parable, a story. A certain man made a great supper and he invited many, many people. He sent his servant at supper time to say to them, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuses. The first one said, I have bought a piece of ground. Um, I don't have time to come to your, me, your feast. I must go and see it. I pray you. Let me be excused. Another said, oh, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go and test them. I pray you, let me be excused. Another said, I've just married a wife. Therefore, I can't come. So the servant came and told his master these things. And the master of the house, he is angry. Go out quickly, therefore, into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind. The servant said, Lord, we did it. As you commanded, and yet there is still more room. He said, go into the, to the servant, go into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in that, they, that my house may be filled. I say unto you, now this is his conclusion. I say unto you, none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Uh, let, let's do a little bit of culture. Okay, um, if you get invited for a supper in Bible days, how long might this supper last? It might last all day. It could last maybe... A couple days. It could go, you know, it could be this lengthy feast. They aren't like you and I inviting for supper. You and I invite for supper, and after about two hours or so, we're, we're ready to say goodbye. 
Okay, we eat, we visit a little bit, and we say, get out of here. No, we don't say that. We just, we want to get out of here. Okay, and we, we move on. In a lot of countries, it doesn't work that way. Even in modern day countries, it doesn't work that way. Typically, when you go to some of these countries, like in the Europe, European countries or whatnot, if you're going to go for a meal, you're going to be there for several hours. That's not American system, per se. And so back in Bible days, it was an expanded meal. So when you read supper, you and I in our English think what? Six o'clock? Okay, that time. We're talking this extended feast. Okay, don't think your supper. Think Bible idea. That we're talking an all-day affair. Okay, in maybe two days. Okay, and so he is, this guy has commented, somebody about, we're all going to be there, and Jesus is going to clarify. Okay, and he's going to point out, and he's going to give a parable, about, a parable about who is going to be there at the major kingdom feast. And in this parable, he's going to use the idea of somebody doing, doing an elaborate, expensive feast that's inviting anybody. Uh, that's, that's enough for all these people. The master wants people to come, and he sends his servants to invite lots of people. Many agree, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming. But when the day arrives, they, they give the excuses. They're not going to come. Now, let's set up our characters if we have it right. The master is apparently God. Okay? If we're making parallels here by what Jesus concluded. The servants who are doing the inviting, Jesus Christ, the prophets. Okay? Who have they bidden for generations? Who have they said, come, come, come? And they said, we will, we will, we will. Okay? In his setting, who do you think the, the invited people are? It's the Jewish people, okay? It's the Jewish people primarily, okay, that he's talking to. And they have said, we will obey you, we will obey you. All the way back to the, to the covenant that they made at, at Mount Sinai. We will do what you say. And, uh, but they give the flimsy excuses. As you start with the excuses, it's interesting what they give. The guy says, I bought a field, I must go and see it. Now, let, let's, it hasn't changed a whole lot in society. If you're going to buy property... This guy says, I'm buying property, I've bought property, I must go see it now. Okay, if you're buying property, folk, what's the norm? You've already seen it. Okay, you've already checked it out. What, what things do you need to check out when you're buying property? Okay, you're going to check out the property itself. Are you going to check out legal documents? Did they have legal documents in Bible days? Yeah, if you were buying property and you were in a Jewish community, what would you want to know in regards to buying the property? Okay, I want to know the boundaries. Absolutely. Are there any liens on it? Are there any liens? Because if whoever it is, if somebody else may own this property because of legal liens. What was somebody saying in the back? Okay, because under Jewish culture, what happens to property? How is it usually passed around? It's, it's gone by family. Is this, is it some family heirloom? Okay, that at the Feast of Jubilee, it would go back to that family. Okay, and so you need to check out these things. And so when he's making this comment, it's, okay, it's semi-legitimate, but some of it is... Um, it's like, uh, my daddy said I'm not home right now. Okay. It's, it's kind of like that type of thing. Okay. The bottom line is this person is very concerned and showing a concern about material possessions. Again, is there anything wrong with material possessions? The answer is no. Okay. But can there be something wrong with material possessions? 
Yeah, it's not wrong that we own them. It gets wrong when they own us. Yeah, okay, that's what you got here. The guy says, I got five oxen. I need to try them out. Again, let's go back to culture. Typical family, typical household, usually have one pair of oxen. If you have five, oh, you're very rich. You've got lots of land. You've got lots of things. And he says, I need to test these oxen that I've just bought. Okay. How many of you buy cars sight unseen or untested? Okay, that's not the norm, right? Okay, you're a farmer. You say, okay, I just, you know, I saw, uh, I saw a Sears catalog and said that, you know, this tractor works. Wouldn't you want to know if this thing is going to fit your needs? So the man has business concerns, a lot of them. Okay, he's a very wealthy individual. That's, that's an obvious. But he's more focused on expanding his finances once again and, and giving a, a lame excuse, my, my business, my business, my business is keeping me. I've married and I can't leave her. Now that might be the more legitimate one, Right? Okay, and, and again, I remind you, in Bible days, let's go back to Old Testament. If you got married, you got a waiver from even serving in the military. Do you remember that? On the Jewish culture, you got a, how, much, how long time? You got a year waiver, okay, because you're supposed to be focusing on your family, and more importantly than that, you're supposed to be producing children, okay? And so with that in mind, they would say, okay, you got a year off. Okay, and let's, let's see if you can keep your family living generation after generation. He says, I married her. I can't leave her. His point is he's putting personal... Pl- and, and, and can somebody leave their spouse for uh, several hours of a meal? Okay, some of you, your, your spouse said no. Okay, <laughs> isn't that sweet of them? They don't want you to go away. They want you to be there forever. Um, so his, his point is they're putting pleasure. Now, he's using a parable. There's a lot, of, a lot of detail here. And basically what he's basically saying is this. These people do not respect the master. They said one thing, and when it came time to put up, they didn't. Okay, so they lied to the master. That's, his, that's what he's getting at. They put all these excuses in front of their commitments. Okay, now he's going to make this into a spiritual discussion. Okay, because he concludes with that, where he says in verse 30, 24, this is all about his supper, his kingdom. And he is making, making it very clear that this banquet is not going to be postponed. Hey, there's a lot of truth here. There's a tremendous amount. There's a lot of spiritual truth here that we could... God is, is beckoning the Jews to salvation. That's the historical setting. He's telling them they need to be born again. In the past, they say, when Messiah comes, we will... Believe him. We will follow him. We will go to the ends of the earth for him. Now Jesus shows up. He gives them signs. And what's their response? Give us more signs. Okay. And they're not following him. And so he is giving this idea that, hey, the salvation message is a very urgent message. You need to respond now. You can't just put it off till later. Which, by the way, do people do this? I will get my business established. I will get my marriage established. Then I'll worry about my relationship with God. Okay? That happened in Bible days. Does it ever happen in our country in these days? Absolutely. Okay? The opportunity is limited. That's what he's driving at. There's a limited opportunity to respond to the invitation that he is giving. The excuses that they gave were very flimsy. The master is not pleased. He made it very clear he's very angry and will not wait further for these individuals. 
Okay, so is there a cutoff time? Is that what Jesus is relaying here? There's a cutoff time to respond to the kingdom invitation. The answer is absolutely positively. That's true. That God has a time period. Let's go a little bit further. The master then tells the servants, go out and invite others in their place. He tells them to get the unworthy, the unlikely. The people he just spoke about that you and I should be interested in. The master says, come in. The poor, the crippled, the lame. Okay, that they should come. They're representing people out of mainstream. In Jewish society... Okay, now put yourself, the Pharisees considered themselves really high on the, on the, in their caste system. Who did they consider at the very bottom in their caste system? What group of nationalities? The Gentiles. What, who else did they consider kind of low? Who? You got, what, what kind of peoples? I can't hear some of the answers. You're saying probably good things. Okay. Are the publicans down here? Yeah. Not the Republicans, but the publicans, are they down here? Okay. Are the, are the, are the, uh, the poor, the lamed? And remember, why are people poor and lame? Do you remember Pharisaical teaching? Things happen to you physically because of... Your sin or your parents' sin. Okay. And so they would have the poor, the lame, they're way down here. The, publican, the publicans, they're way down here. And the Pharisees, they're way up here. Next to them could be the people who live around Jerusalem because they're close to them. Kind of down here are the Galileans. And you keep on going. And down at the very bottom you have the Gentiles and the Samaritans. They are the lowest of life. And so he is saying, go and get the people who, who are not mainstream. You look down upon those who you would look as not so good people to be around. And they don't deserve to come to the feast. But they're going to get invited by the master. There is still room. So go out in the highways and byways. And you invite the strangers. Who are strangers that you're inviting? Who would they represent? Okay, the Gentiles. The people who are totally outside the realm. That, you know, are traveling through. They, they don't belong here at all. They're not even part of the nationality. Jesus basically is concluding in response to a fellow who has said, Well, I'm really glad that all of us at this table are going to be in the kingdom at the feast. And Jesus is saying... Not all of you are going to be at the kingdom feast because you haven't responded to God's urgent message of come and dine now. Now when the meal is being presented, the spiritual truth, when the Messiah is there, you have rejected him. And so he gives this message that's really pointed with the idea that you need to respond to God's message. Bottom line is this. He, affir he affirms, okay, this is a very important truth. The Jews will be invited. They are invited. They were a special group of people that God had said they're my chosen people. And I'm going to really target them. And I'm inviting them to a future feast. The blessings, though, for this future feast. This is an important thought that the Jews never got. It's not a right because they're Jews. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of grace. That they, did, they aren't going to be there just because they're of a nationality. Just because they have a birth certificate. And he's pointing out that what it revolves around is responding at the right moment to the invitation that Jesus says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, And they need to respond to the invitation now. And do what is required right now or they're not going to be in the kingdom. Nothing, his point is, nothing is more important than responding to God's invitation to the kingdom. Nothing. 
Nothing is more important than your spiritual life in the sense of, okay, um, your, your, your destiny, you know, making sure that, that you are going to be there. That includes your possessions. The reason being, and, and, and it's not wrong with possessions, but the reason our cars are not the most important thing, our homes are, are not the most important thing because they're not going to last. Our soul is what we take with us. And so he's saying, make sure you're right with God more than anything else. Your business concerns, guess what? You and I may focus in on all kinds of business, but they're going to replace us one day anyway. And so he's talking about even our family. And he's making an allusion to even family. You cannot put family ahead of God's invitation. And he's going to talk about the next paragraph. Before you go real further, a lot further, he's going to talk about that idea of family. And the real disciple will hate family. And we have to explain that term, okay? So here he's going, he's talking, people need to respond positively to his offer. Not just say, I will one day, one day, one day. I've heard, and it's, it's basically when I'm ready, then I'll respond. God is willing to have all kinds of people at his ban- eternal banquet. All kinds. The Gentiles, the poor, the lame, the hoi polloi Jews, he's inviting them all to that banquet, even those who are not complete or not the, what the Jews thought, even those who are considered unworthy, even those who are the Gentiles. And he's going to develop that as time goes by. And by the way, where is he at this point in his ministry? Where is he in this banquet invitation? He has already given them out. He has the invitation. He has heard all the excuses. Jesus is inviting the poor, the lamed. And in the book of Acts, where will they go? Into the highways and byways and invite the Gentiles. And so this, this uh, parable is going to be, be enacted out. God, this is an important thought. God's salvation timetable is not adjusted to fit our timetable. That's a tremendous, tremendous thought we have to keep in mind. God's timetable is not adjusted to fit our schedules. We need to fit into God's schedule. Behold, when is the day of salvation? Now, according to 1 Corinthians 6. It is not hearing the invitation alone that guarantees entrance into the kingdom. People must respond personally. Okay? And again, I bring this back to where you are. Have you responded to God's invitation? Or are you starting to give him excuses like, you know, I'll wait until I'm done with school. I'll wait until I get my family worked out. I'll wait until I've got everything and when I get older. And I told you about the fellow that I, when I first got saved and I was saved a matter of weeks, I was witnessing to a friend. And this friend, and I had no, no idea that Christians are supposed to be tactful. So at 16 when I got saved, I was witnessing to Scott talking about it. And we're driving through the little town we lived in. There's the church on the hill right in the center of the town. And he, and he put, slowed down and he said, i got to tell you something. He said, see all those old people going to Mass? He said, um, when I get old, then I'll take care of my spiritual concerns. Like those people. That's the way many people think. Unbeknownst to Scott, within a year he was involved in an accident and decapitated by a, by a trailer. Okay? He thought he had all kinds of time. Okay? That's why Jesus Christ says you know, that you and I do not know what the morrow holds. Okay? Today is the time we get right with God. And so he's teaching this lesson. Then what happens is Jesus leaves. Okay, we have no idea how the Pharisees responded, but he's just kind of put them in their place and said, you think you're going to be there. You're not going to be there. And he's made it very clear. Verse 24, those of you who were bidden, not all of you are going to be at the supper. 
You need to be born again. Then he goes on and watch what happens in the next paragraph. And when, then there's a great multitude with him. So he's traveling and a lot of the people who have listened in, they're starting to go with him. And he starts traveling and he's got this big crowd and he's going to turn to this crowd and he's going to talk to the crowd and he's going to be more acquainted with them. Okay. And I got a question for you. Why do you think this big crowd is following him? Why are so many people on his tail right now? What, what could have drawn a lot of these people? I'm just sorry. Okay, he's done miracles. He's fed people. Any other thing? Curiosity. curiosity. That's a good reason. They're coming because when you see a crowd gather, what's your curiosity say? What do we, yeah, I'm going to gather there too. We do the same thing. When you, see, when you see cars going real slow because something happened over here, what do you do when you, oh, we're going to gawk as well. Okay. well. What could be another reason why there's people following him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's our type of guy. He, he speaks and he's, you know, he tells it like it is. Does that ever happen in modern day politics? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So, you know, um, that same type of scenario. Human nature is the same in, in generations. And so people are being attracted. Jesus is going to do what? If you were Jesus, if you were in his shoes and you know him better than those people did, what would you want to do with this crowd? Do you, are you excited about big numbers? You're Jesus Christ. Are you excited about big numbers? I mean, you're glad that people are coming, but what do you want out of this crowd? You want to make sure they're there for the right reasons. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you, want to kind of, you want to kind of find out, are they following me because they think I'm going to do something for them? I'm going to get rid of the Romans. Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to give them more food. I'm going to make them rich. You want to know that these are really, really sincere people following you like a... What, what's the word for followers that's used in the New Testament? Disciple. You want to make sure they're a real disciple. That they are really have a genuine desire to follow you. It's kind of like what you want to do is you want to weed out the crowd. Uh, do we ever have instances where people want to do things and they get weeded out? Uh, let me see if I can throw, come up with illustrations. A lot of people see the films, they see the, 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 uh, the, um, the exploits, good exploits of our military groups that are specially trained forces, right? A young person would see some of these films and say, I want to be a Navy SEAL. I want to be some of these, you know, some of these high-ranking individuals, the beret, the, the, different, the different military elite corps. So everybody who signs up gets into them. Yes or no? No, what do they do? They weed them out by doing what? Intense, intense endurance and training because what does the military want? They want the best of the best. Okay, so you're weeding them out. In, um, in Christian service... A lot of people say, from a Christian service, they say, oh, I think being a missionary would be cool. And it could be. Why? What would be the cool things about being a missionary? Traveling? Yeah. I mean, seriously, do you get to see cool things? Yeah, you do. You get to meet different people. You get to try all kinds of weird foods. You know, that's exciting. Okay. You get those types of things. You get to learn another language. Is there a process that's, that is necessary to weed out? 
some of those individuals to see if they have the endurance. There's a process. You know, it's got the flaws, but there's a process called deputation. Kind of weeds out. Um, we had a process. I know this. When I first started college, oh, man, there was classes filled with guys who want to be able to preach the word. Because preaching is, looks really cool. Seriously, it really does. You may not think so. I think so. You know, one day a week you have to work. That is cool. That is cool. Okay? It's just, you know, you, you just you, you get to stand up and you get to yell at people. And they can't yell back, you know. It's just really cool. Okay? And so we'd start and we'd have these preacher boy classes and there'd be 120 guys in the class. Uh, uh, almost a third of the college was that. What was part of the college experience and the seminary experience? To do what? To weed them out. Okay? Because some of us couldn't preach. There's classes that say you've got to stand up and speak, and if you can't speak, you know, that's... Yeah. You, desire alone is not enough. Okay, does that make sense? In a lot of areas of life, desire alone is not enough. There has to be abilities, and there has to be, you know, fortitude. Well, that's what Jesus is going to deal with, okay? He's going to deal with crowds that desire to be around him, but he's saying that's not enough. And so he gives this lesson that's about, all about discipleship. He's not impressed by their numbers or their enthusiasm. Okay? He wants to know what's their heart. What's their mind? Will they be here when the glory disappears? When the crowds disappear? So he's going to thin out the ranks. Watch what he does. In verse 25, he turns and he says, If you're going to come after me, and you do not hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yea, and your own life. I think he's got everybody covered, doesn't he? Okay. He cannot be what? Yeah, he's going to be very clear. If you're going to really be my follower, mathetes is the word disciple. It means to mimic. It means to be just like him. And he's going to make it very clear. Now, understand that in some of the Gospels, you have the idea of disciple. Like John uses it in a very broad sense. Keep this in mind. The Gospel of John is very broad. I've told you this a couple of times. The Gospel of John uses disciple in the same sense that we in America, in general America, use as Christian. Okay? In America, Christian covers everything. Everything that's basically... <laughs> Christian, okay, it covers every denomination, okay, and you and I in America, we say, okay, we use the term, but when we say Christian, we're talking a narrow, born-again, Christ-like one, yes, no, okay, that's the way he is using it in Luke, he's going to make it a more defined, John uses disciple very, very broadly, Luke is going to use it more defined, he's talking about those who are really, really following him, and Jesus is after quality, not just quantity of people who are following him, he wants to know what they're like, and so he has just talked about, and the way Luke is laying this out is interesting, everybody, everybody, everybody come and come to my house for my banquet, everybody is invited, but... I want to know if you're really, really, really genuine here. I want to know how sincere you are. He is interested in everybody getting saved. He is not willing that any should perish. But he wants those who are born again to be really sold out to him. And so he's going to give these lessons. And his teachings about the real disciples, okay? And we'll, we're not going to go deep. Just let me give you this. He doesn't give the minimum, I think that's a mistake we read in this text. That what is the minimum? Because we do that. 
We do that at times. What is, what, is re, what is the bottom line? What am I required here? What is the lease payment? When, when we sign a mortgage, most of us, when we sign the mortgage, we're looking at what, do, what is the base payment I need to make. We're not looking at, you know, can I make a whole lot more? Well, Jesus isn't giving the, just the minimum of discipleship. He is basically saying, here's the priorities. Okay, here's what's expected of everyone, and it's not a minimum, it is a maximum priority. He becomes your maximum priority. And it's really interesting what he says in these next couple of verses about true discipleship and what it is involved. In other words, he is going to make it very clear to them, nothing is more important than following me. Not your fields, your oxen, or your marriage. He has just said that. He has just said, you know, those of you who gave flimsy excuses... About marriage and family, now he's going to deal with marriage and family and putting Christ first. So the setting is very interesting the way Luke does it. We have a whole lot more to talk about, but we don't have that time.